0: Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, and welcome back to New Books in Food, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. I'm Kelly Spivey, the host of the channel, and today we'll be talking to Rebecca Sharpless about her new book, Grain and Fire, a history of baking in the American South. Rebecca is a professor of history at Texas Christian University and focuses on American history particularly in the U.S. South, and its intersections with gender and sexuality, food, and labor. Prior to her professorship, she was the director of the Baylor University Institute for Oral History for over 10 years. Welcome, Rebecca. I am beyond excited to talk to you today.
1: (laughs) Thank you, Kelly. Thank you for having me. I'm glad to be here. Yeah, so I'd kind of like to get started by
0: getting to know you a bit better. You write about how you grew up in Grain and Fire, which does include a very adorable picture of you as a child (laughs) um, with a very elaborate birthday cake. (laughs) But I'm gonna be greedy and ask you to tell us a bit more. Uh, How did you come to focus on the history of Southern baking?
1: Like all histories, it has a deep, deep meaning. Um, When I worked on my doctoral dissertation, it was a study of farm women in Central Texas. And I did a lot of oral history interviews with women who were born between 1900 and 1920. And one of the things that struck me was how they could talk about the foods of their childhoods, the accuracy of their memories of what they ate and what their mothers fixed. And so I decided that my second book was going to be on Southern food and women and I had this elaborate scheme, and David Perry, who was my editor at the University of North Carolina Press, said, you know, if you can work on the the domestic worker piece of your elaborate scheme, I think you will have done something, and so I started working on uh, my second book, which was on domestic workers as cooks, and again, a lot of baking and things like that. When it came time to go on to the next project, it took me a while, and I fished around and didn't get much traction on anything. Then one day, my husband and I were, we had moved to Fort Worth so that I could be at TCU, and there were these enormous grain silos north of town, just block after block of them, and I looked at those and thought, what are those doing here? This isn't Kansas. And so I started digging around and I discovered that this area of Texas was actually known not just for cotton and not just for cattle, but also for wheat. So I started working on the history of wheat in this area and realized that there was not a standard history of baking. And so I set the wheats project aside and decided to tackle the baking book, and here we are. I'm back into the wheat right now. Um, But after having set that aside for a number of years while I did the baking book, but it's all all been very organic, if you'll pardon sort of a pun.
0: Yeah, it's very easy to go down rabbit holes.
1: yes yes this is a major rabbit hole
0: especially with baking I think
1: (laughs) well food in general particularly yes yeah yeah um so
0: you've touched already on a bunch of things that I would love to talk about so if you're okay with it I'd love to dive into the book sure yeah um You know, baking has a lot to do with the ingredients available, but I feel that you really made it a point to highlight how labor and class are shaping these practices. Mm -hmm. Um, So I'd really like to make sure we touch on those as we go through the chapter. Uh, But to start with the first, each chapter is titled after baked good, and you begin with acorn bread. So could you tell me first a little bit about the choice to name each chapter after baked good? And then we can kind of get into the first chapter itself.
1: Well, every book is a collaboration. And in this case, that wonderful collaborator was Elaine Mazner, who is my editor at the University of North Carolina Press. And that actually was her idea. So, but it was certainly an easy one to follow. And the acorn bread particularly tickled me because The house I grew up in had an enormous live oak tree, and I spent many hours playing with acorns and always wondered if they were edible, and the answer is they are, but it takes a lot of work. So finding out that Native Americans actually did, and actually poor Europeans as well, actually did make make bread from acorns was quite satisfying.
0: Did you feel a little vindicated?
1: <laughs> I did, but on the other hand, I'm sitting here looking at my next-door neighbor's live oak tree, and I have not been the slightest bit tempted to try to, to make them into fl- make the acorns into flour. <laughs> yeah, it's, a can, lot, it's an enormous amount of work.
0: Yeah, can you talk a little bit more about that? Um, you know, I guess sort of the indigenous baking practices that were going on prior to Europeans coming.
1: One of the things that continues to fascinate me about humanity in general is our ingenuity. Some, many somebodies along the line, whether in Mesopotamia or in Mexico or, you know, the Kalahari figured out that, okay, I can take this seed or this grain or this whatever and i can grind it up and i can put it in the fire and if i do that it's going to make a hole a uh, whole a hole something an entire something and i my husband can put that in his pocket and when he goes out to hunt for the day he can it's portable he can use that And I can store it and we can have it for dinner tonight. It doesn't have to be eaten immediately. And all this is opposed to like gruel. So just the ingenuity of of humans figuring out that they could take grains and make them and bake them and make them into something edible and portable, I find truly remarkable. Um, More mobile societies would use open flames where you just carry the campfire with you more subtle societies created oven technology and again across the millennia and across the continents so what we have here in the south there are some ovens but there are many sites in which the clay in the ground has been fired after dozens or even hundreds of years of repeated repeated use You just build that fire right on the ground and it hardens into something very much like a hearth. Yeah,
0: I was really fascinated by that. So that is literally just the ground Mm -hmm. and from repeated, from having fire over it repeatedly, it does just harden it into a surface of its own. Right. Wow. Wow. Yeah. And the other thing that I found really interesting was um, not the labor that was required because of the lack of storage. Mm -hmm. You you could not, you know, we're so used to grabbing a bag of flour and just putting it in our pantry, but that wasn't the case. So the labor they had to perform was really um, daily.
1: In the case of corn, Well, in the case of both, but in the case of corn, if it's a whole grain, you know, a picture of a whole kernel of corn, it will store indefinitely for, like, forever. But once it's ground, it becomes rancid very quickly, once you free up that, that oil that's in the middle of it. And so, yes, for a lot of people... Grinding corn, in particular, was a daily activity, and for women in particular. Uh, To jump forward in time, a number of travelers in the South, the antebellum South, commented they were just horrified because enslaved people would come in from after a day of working 12 hours in the field, and they would still have to grind the corn for their dinner because it would not hold from day to day. And so... um, was it was very labor intensive and and very constant absolutely um i i it's not funny but i i joke that all of us are descended from millennia of women who spent much of their days on their knees grinding grain all of us yes definitely and
0: i think this is where it starts and that kind of goes over into the second chapter a little uh these ideas around corn and wheat Mm -hmm. can you talk a little bit about just how those two grains were perceived so differently
1: glad to I'm a real fan girl of corn (laughs) (laughs) Uh, it's amazingly adaptable it'll grow almost anywhere it's pretty nutritious it's easy to harvest It's easy to cook, but it does not grind into a fine powder and it doesn't have gluten in it, so it won't rise. I mean, it will, but not really. And one of the things I like to tell people is, you know, you can take a handful of cornmeal and you can wet it and you can bake it and it's edible. It's not very good. And so you start adding things like salt and fat and you know, whatever else you want to, but um, but it's edible. Wheat, on the other hand, is much more finicky. Wheat likes dry. Wheat likes cool. Wheat's easy to grow. It is difficult to harvest and very difficult to process. But it will grind down to a consistency that's almost like silk. When you rub it between your fingers and it has that marvelous characteristic, that marvelous protein called gluten that allows it to trap air as it cooks. And so it will rise high and airy and delicate. And people prize that. They've always prized it. So corn is much cheaper. Corn is much widely available corn is not as adaptable to the variety of recipes when you think what can you make from corn Well, you make cornbread (laughs) what do you make from wheat we make biscuits and you make pies and you make cakes and you make leavened bread and you know the list goes on Um, wheat is much more adaptable so but Because wheat is finicky, it doesn't grow in a lot of places in the South. I I always get so amused thinking about the poor French around New Orleans and Mobile. They tried. They tried planting it every month of the year to see if they could get it to grow. They tried everything they could think of, and they finally gave up because it's just too humid, too warm and too humid. And so they said, okay, well, we'll just get our wheat from the, the territories up in the Illinois territory and bringing it down the Mississippi. And that's what they did. And there's lots and lots of obstacles to that. But even though they had to go to a lot of trouble to import it, even though they had to go to a, an expense to buy it, whereas they could just practically grow corn at the back door, they were willing to do it. And that's true of all Europeans, whether it's the Spanish, whether it's the French or whether it's the British, they want that wheat flour and they're willing to give up good money to get it. Do
0: you feel like they just could, couldn't could develop a taste for, for corn flour and cornmeal and corn products or was it a little deeper
1: than that? I think it's a combination of both. We like the foods from home. We like the foods that remind us of home. And as I said, wheat flour is just so much more adaptable. You can use it for so many other things. Um, Corn is corn is corn. So what we see really well into the 20th century is that a lot of farm families, for example, would have cornbread for their midday meal and then leftover cornbread for supper, as they called it. That they wanted biscuits for breakfast, and a lot of times, some families, for example, would have biscuits only for Sunday breakfast. If they couldn't, if they couldn't afford to have biscuits every day of the week, then they'd have it for Sunday breakfast. But wheat has always been considered a treat, and so um, you save it for special occasions, or you for people you want to impress and to prove to other people that you're better off than they are because you eat it more often than they do.
0: Yeah, it sounds like a lot of the ingredients that go into baking were, as you put it, as treats, Mm -hmm. Um, sugar, eggs, dairy. I know that you, in the second chapter, you started to use a household book from Lady Berkeley Mm -hmm. uh, to kind of show all the different things that were um, being made at the time. And I wonder if you could talk a little bit too about sources, because I know a lot of these books were from wealthier families that were able to read and write and, and keep these house books. Do we have any sources or ways to find what, you know, everyday
1: people were doing? The Spanish were better about that than the English. The Spanish colonial governments were fanatical record keepers. And so from them, we can see... What what records are being kept, and how much corn is being consumed, and how much wheat flour? And of course, they are large, Well, they're bringing they're bringing wheat flour from Spain, but they're also bringing it from Mexico. Um, interestingly enough, right? wheat grows very well in the highlands of Mexico. Among the English, after after the English get settled, um, and we have the Jamestown starving time, but really by 1630s probably um the english are, are are doing a whole lot better so we don't have a lot of records but we do have a few and we know that that you know the poorer you were the more likely you were to use to eat corn out the uh, by the certainly by the early 18th century we have newspapers The Carolina Gazette and the Virginia Gazette start getting cranked up. And so you can see the ads of what they are selling. And um, I always got amused because, you know, Charleston thinks that it's all that. In the 18th century, Charleston was all that. If you had money, you could buy anything in Charleston olive oil, spices, you name it. And it was available in Charleston, South Carolina, which again doesn't help us with the common people, but we can kind of extrapolate down and um, and figure that they were eating fairly simply. Yeah.
0: Um, and yeah, as you said, you know, once the records start... Being in the archive a little bit more, you really do piece together quite a bit.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: Um, you know the the third chapter, the plum cakes chapter, was just so fascinating to me because technology. Mm-hmm. It I I feel like once we get to this chapter, I was just exhausted uh, with all the new things that kept coming up until present day Mm -hmm. and it is i cannot imagine you know the rise of commercial bakeries the communal mills and the ovens and the space of the kitchen itself were changing so much and you know you just mentioned charleston rice is starting to come into the mix a little bit um can you Talk a little bit about the importance of those mills and those ovens and, and those spaces um, where the baking was happening.
1: Sure. The South has never been noted for being terribly urban. It certainly it always was way behind New England with the communal spaces. But mills were were community spaces in and of themselves. A lot of wheat mills were privately owned. They The more the uh, technology developed, the more capital-intensive they became and the more expensive they became. It cost money to set up a mill. And they, in their way, they were works of art. But, and people would come for many, many miles around to get their wheat ground. And when I say people, it would be men. They were very male spaces very few women in the mills and so the men would come in and while they're waiting their turn they visit and they catch up and they catch up on the news and see who's doing what and maybe they buy a meal while they're there because you know they didn't bring anything from home um and so the mills do change over time some and but some of the technology remains the same I just got back from a trip to Eastern Tennessee and my friends were teasing me because everywhere I turned, there were millstones, those round flat stones that were used to grind wheat And I would take a picture of every single one of them that I saw because each one of them is different, just a little bit different. And um, so every com- You know, not every community had them, but if a community had a mill, it was a big deal. Now, in terms of the baking technology, the wealthiest people until after the American Revolution had large open fireplaces. And if they were really well off, they would have an oven built to the side of that, a brick oven built to the side of the fireplace and that was the technology that was used for a long, long time. The cook stove was invented again not too long after the American Revolution and it spread very slowly across the south and through the urban areas. Um, Probably by the 1870s 1880s fireplace cooking was getting phased out but we're still cooking with wood so you still have to know how to manage a wood fire on well up into the 20th century and a lot of women were very reluctant to give up their wood stoves and go with gasoline or or um, electric or yeah so that's a, a long baggy answer, but um, am I getting it? what you wanted? Yeah,
0: I just, I think it's, there's a lot of skill required just to use a fireplace to bake anything. Absolutely. And I, I am honestly surprised and, and was surprised to read that They were very reluctant to incorporate something new. They wanted to keep doing this very labor intensive, um, style of cooking.
1: Well, if it ain't broke, you don't fix it, right? (laughs) That, that is very true. But my friends who are campers, I mentioned the Dutch oven to them and they say, oh yeah, because that's what they still use. But the invention of the Dutch oven, the pot with the rimmed lid, um, so it, it has legs so you can put coals under it and then has a rim lid so you can put live coals on top of it to create the hot air to do the baking in. And those were just considered just an amazing technological invention when they were brought over from the, Nether- from the Netherlands, hence the name, the Dutch oven. Um, but the idea to me of shoveling and and cooks did, whether what no matter what kind of, of oven they were using, a Dutch oven or a built-in oven or whatever, they shoveled live coals. They handled, they literally handled fire. So the skill and the danger and the skill to not seriously injure yourself while handling live coals is really amazing. And of course, there's also that huge question: um, how do you know how hot it is, and how do you know when something is done, and that for those of us who grew up with thermostats, not even thermometers, but thermostats, I I put my oven on 350 and expect that it's going to be at 350, but, you know, do you stick in a sheet of paper into the near the fire to see how quickly it burns do you put your hand in to see how quickly it burns do you put your face in to see how? you know how do you gauge that temperature and that comes only through vast experience
0: and i think that's such an interesting point so much of baking had you had recipes but you really had to have the experience.
1: Absolutely. Uh, and that's one of the things that's so interesting and sad about domestic servants is their employers or their enslavers expecting them to just know how to do what they were supposed to do. And baking is not intuitive. It's uh, my, my students tease me because I always say baking is chemistry and you can't intuit the ratio of flour to baking powder—you just gotta know it. I mean, you have—you know—it's—it's it's a chemical formula. It's not something you can eyeball.
0: Yeah, um, and a lot of these women I know uh, would make things on the side, and that is to say, after incredibly long days of you know, working for their enslavers, and then they would make things to sell. And I'd really like to talk a little bit at this point about sort of the role of of ingenuity in Southern baking, I think is the best way to think of it, because it seems that throughout the book, Southern baking starts to be kind of defined by, you know, this is all we can get, so this is what we'll use this is how I can make extra money. So this is what I'll do. Um, I guess just if you could talk a little bit about these, uh, peddlers, I guess, for, for lack of a better.
1: Sure. Well, um, I'd like to circle back to the ingenuity question and the, the, you know, you think, you know, things and then you learn things. Um, The one that surprised me the most was the use of bear grease. Now, why that would be a surprise to me, I I just hadn't really thought about it. The natives have presumably used bear grease for millennia. But the idea of a proper French housewife in Natchitoches learning to use bear grease, which is bound to be really strong tasting, I can just imagine. But as you say, you have what, You have what's nearby. You don't have any pigs to get lard from. You want something to use as fat in your baking. Bear grease? Okay, bear grease it is. The use of wild foods, uh, particularly berries. Um, Lots of people would go out into the blackberry bushes with the thorns and the mosquitoes and get enough blackberries to cook or enough blackberries to petal, as you say, even the raw ingredients. Um, tapping honey, a little bit of maple sugar, not a lot of it, but just using what is at hand to make things better. Absolutely. But in terms of the peddlers, again, these long days of working for ones and slavers and then getting enough fuel for the fire, getting the raw ingredients to bake, and then having the energy to bake them into something and having enough time, which, again, had to be at the enslaver's, with the enslaver's permission, to take these things into the nearby town and peddle them. Absolutely. And it was a way to... Get a little cash for something as small as perhaps some buttons to make your dress prettier or or some extra nice food or save up in the hopes of gaining one's freedom at some point.
0: Yeah, one example you gave is um, someone that 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 escaped altogether.
1: doing this. Yes, when you get, the people who could get to town and could pedal, they knew their way around, they knew the territory, and they would meet people and make connections and be able to get free sometimes that way. So they had a lot more autonomy than somebody who was stuck on a plantation in deepest, darkest Mississippi, for example. Yeah. Yeah. Or as we, we say, you know, up here in North Texas, you're 400 miles from the Mexican border. It's going to be a tough escape.
0: Really. Yeah.
1: Um,
0: and this, in this chapter too, you also mentioned kind of, this is where we start to see roles, <laughs> those popular Southern roles, And yes. And that feels also like ingenuity.
1: The individual portions, and um, you know, I, one of the things I've tried to get through the book is: is there anything truly southern about southern baking? And these individual portions seem to be one of the indicators. When you live in a hot climate, as we do, you want to minimize your oven use. To bake a loaf of a loaf of bread takes a lot longer than an individual roll or an individual biscuit or an individual corn pone. and so if you make them in individual portions they don't require as much fuel and they don't heat the kitchen up quite as much
0: and And portable
1: (laughs) yes absolutely more portable and and we just get used to that's my roll that's your roll no we're not going to slice that loaf of cold bread (laughs) And people talked about, uh, visitors talked about Southerners like they were some kind of barbarians because they ate their bread hot from the oven instead of letting it cool. So in New England, you got served cold loaf bread. Well, of course, it has to be cold because if you try to cut it while it's hot, it's going to squish down, right? Or as one of my interviewees said, Waddy. She called it Waddy bread. <laughs> <laughs> in, in a roll you bite into it yourself it doesn't matter if it's waddy or not it's good
0: <laughs> that's interesting that we would have we would just eat it hot from the oven i mean i guess the humidity is gonna put you in some difficult places
1: yeah i i don't really know how that's you know i can't point to any one thing of how that started except cornbread is better hot And, um, and, you know, we think biscuits and we think biscuits and rolls are better hot, too. It's what we're used to. The other thing, and we're talking about the elites here, but there was such a premium placed on bread being hot that there was this constant relay between the kitchen and the dining room to make sure that guests did not get cold bread and I think about that the labor and the timing that was involved of getting things out of the kitchen oven which could be 30 or 40 feet away or even further and into the dining room before it got cold that took that took some effort on the part of those enslaved people some real hustling so that the the enslavers and their guests would, would have those precious hot breads. And were kitchens weren't always separated, were no, they? No, it depended. Um it depended on the house, depended on the layout, depended on the location. You um, mentioned Lady Berkeley, for example, at Greenspring, which was. It always amazes me. Greenspring was the finest house in 17th century Virginia, and it just was allowed to go to rack and ruin and disappeared. We don't have any artifacts from Greenspring as far as I know, but that kitchen was in the basement, so maybe more of an English model, Um, and in the cities the kitchens would be either in the house at the back or they would be detached, but they would be much closer. in the rural areas where they had more room to spread out, they might be further away and the kitchen might double as housing for some of the enslaved people.
0: Because they really did have to tend the fire and stay there more or less.
1: They were on call 24-7. They really were. I'm tired already. (laughs) Yeah. Just thinking about it. And, and, um, you know, to have cornbread or biscuit ready for breakfast is not a terrible thing, but if you've got an employer that wants yeast bread for breakfast, then that means you've got to get up at least what hours before breakfast, maybe more. So yeah, not a whole lot of sleeping going on in those. (laughs) Fortunately, really, really hard work. Um,
0: can we talk, I'm going to pivot a little bit to kind of moving along into the next chapter, the hoe cake chapter. Um, can we talk a little bit about fruitcake? Sure. (laughs) I honestly had no idea that fruitcake was so prevalent, um, and so important as a reputation maker. Mm -hmm. Um, Was it just the the ability to store it, or or just its popularity? Like, what made fruit cake such an important um, dessert?
1: It's a couple of different things. One is that before there was a lot of sugar, fruit would be a source of sweetness. Okay. And fruits, dried fruit will keep indefinitely if you take care of it. So you would have it on hand. So that's two things. Fruitcakes don't have, I mean, it depends. A lot of fruitcakes don't actually have a lot of batter. They're mostly fruit and nuts. And that goes way, way back. But the other thing is that you douse them with alcohol and they literally will keep for years. So you have the fact that the fruit will keep, the fact that the fruit is sweet and doesn't require a lot of sugar, and the fact that you can make these cakes and they will store indefinitely. So yeah, they've been around, I was really surprised. I sort of knew about fruitcake and the joke about the eternal fruitcake that just gets circulated around. I was more surprised by gingerbread, which was also very, very popular, and I still don't fully understand that, except that ginger was cheap and plentiful. All right, Uh, yeah.
0: Fruitcakes as reputation makers.
1: Right. People often get judged by their baking abilities, whether it's biscuits or birthday cakes or whatever, but fruitcake was a good way for a woman, particularly an enslaved woman or a hired person, to make a reputation. Fruitcake is a lot of trouble. I um, I decided last December that I was going to make one or two just to give it a try. And I have wonderful, um, you know, I have everything you could want. I have sharp knives. I have a KitchenAid mixer. I have a a KitchenAid oven. I have lovely, lovely things. And it wasn't terrible, but I just kept imagining what it would be like if my knives were dull or if I had to beat this very heavy dough by hand. And so the women who decided to make fruitcakes, whether on their own or because they're enslavers their employers compelled them to were in for just a lot of work gathering the ingredients and the one I made had something like 16 different ingredients of which two-thirds had to be chopped and then chopping them and then making the batter to bind them together then baking them successfully it's just a great deal of trouble and so you see pretty early housewives don't want to do this so they will hire it done if they can and you see ads that say things like in the 20th century you see things that say housewives save yourself the trouble let us provide your fruitcake so it's a very important cultural phenomenon to have fruitcakes long before the johnny carson show turned them into a joke a good fruit cake maker could could command good prices if she were selling them, and a good reputation. One thing I found really interesting that I hadn't realized when my friend Sarah got married in England about twenty years ago, she still had a fruit cake for her wedding cake, and I thought that was very curious. Well, it turns out that that was the case here in the United States until perhaps nineteen hundred. Wedding cakes were fruit cakes and you cut up the leftovers and guests took them home and you could put a piece under your pillow and dream about your future spouse. There's one story in the book about a young Charleston woman from a very privileged family who married a Philadelphian and it took like nine months for her cake to get in the mail from Charleston to Philadelphia, but it finally got there and she said it was in good enough shape for her to cut it up and take it around to her new friends. Wow.
0: I I didn't realize that it was used as a wedding cake Mm -hmm. for so long. Mm -hmm. Um, I think that was the other interesting thing. So many people think about uh, layer cakes with the South and that really was not the case until, I mean, probably the early 20th century.
1: It started in the late, in the 1870s and 1880s, and that has to do with the miracle of baking powder. Mm -hmm. Now, as we remember from the pandemic, yeast bread is a fussy little thing and requires a lot of skill. So people started looking for chemical leavens pretty early on, and they tried several different combinations Um, baking soda being one of them different kinds of things and it's really interesting because baking powder as opposed to I don't know about you but when I was growing up that was one of the first lessons you have to learn that baking soda and baking powder are not the same thing (laughs) that's right you try one and it doesn't necessarily work when they call for the other one so Baking powder seems like it's such a simple thing, but it was a major, major game changer once Once the manufacturers, of which there were several, figured out how to make it stable and how to package it for sale. And a number of those brands that were invented in the 1860s and 1870s are still on the grocery store shelves today. So before baking powder if you wanted a light cake like a layer cake it used eggs for leavening and so you see recipes for these great cakes as they were called that used 12 14 16 eggs which was an amazing extravagance because chickens don't Hello, people, in 2023, chickens don't naturally lay all year round. So there's not even a steady supply of eggs all year round. And 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 it requires an enormous amount of beating because you don't have an electric mixer. Maybe all you have are twigs, um, a handful of twigs to beat your egg whites with. So very, very labor intensive to get those light cakes. And after baking powder is invented, then the layer cake truly comes into its own. And beats the heck out of me how things like coconut cakes got their recipe, I mean, got the reputation as being Southern and quintessentially Southern. There's nothing particularly Southern about them. They make them in the North. They sell desiccated coconut in the North. They sell fresh coconut in the North, but somehow it got it became iconic and I noted with enormous amusement that Dolly Parton's first risk first box cake mix was for Southern style coconut cake. And I don't know what makes it co- Southern except that it's Dolly and I, I love Dolly Parton and I will never, ever, ever say anything cross about her, but, but, um, but yeah. yeah. Yes. Like
0: cakes. So many of those, uh, quote unquote, southern desserts do have that mysterious kind of origin where we really can't pinpoint like chest pie has been really right. hard to nail down.
1: Right. You know, right. But if you go back, and we haven't talked about cookbooks as a source and I can talk about them for hours. <sighs> but the cookbook industry in the north really started to explode about 1820. And you have women like Eliza Leslie publishing multiple cookbooks with detailed lists of ingredients and instructions. And by the time you get to the period after the Civil War, there are hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of these cookbooks being published in the North. And they have coconut cakes in them. They have pineapple upside-down cakes in them. They have banana puddings. There's nothing Southern about these in particular. And it's all just very curious to me how this marketing of the reputation um, got established. Now, there are some truly Southern cakes, like the Lady Baltimore cake, which we don't see very often. It probably was invented in Charleston. We don't know for sure, um, and a number of other things. But um, a lot of it is, is Southern marketing, if you will. We we label these things as Southern. We market them as Southern. So by golly,
0: they are Southern. I think you just broke a lot of hearts out there.
1: <laughs> <laughs> well, if they want to, to prove that I'm not just being cruel a lot of these 19th century cookbooks are available full text on the internet so just google coconut cake 1860 and see what pops up and and uh, I'm afraid I'm afraid that their their broken heart will be based in fact (laughs)
0: well I um you know it seems and this may be a larger point but it just seems to me that Southern food or Southern baking in particular is very much what defines it is it's sort of inability to really be defined because so much of it is like we talked about before, ingenuity using what you have. Um, you know, you talk about the raisin cake mm-hmm. um, during and the during civil the- war. That I- is can you tell me what Confederate raisins are?
1: Trying to remember.
0: <laughs> <laughs> Sorry to put you on the spot.
1: <laughs> um, um, oh, yeah, they're peaches. Yes, they are dried peaches that are snipped up. And But the Civil War was really, really an exception. Um, and it's so interesting. One of the things that sort of horrified me about it, and this is probably not going where you want it to go, but the hoarding among the wealthy... The fact that Verena Davis could still serve chocolate cake in 1864, where people close to the lines of war were practically starving. That just horrified me, these discrepancies, and, and there were food shortages, particularly in the cities and particularly close to the lines of war, but the elite, by golly, they were going to have what they wanted, and they were going to have it when they wanted, and that sort of terrified me. Um, something I was going to say about, about ingredients for making do, what was it? Um, ingenuity, recipes, it'll come back, go ahead.
0: Oh no! I just—that's also a really good point. Um, the disparity
1: yes. is—it—it
0: it has always been present, but I think you know, during the Civil War, following the Civil War, especially even with with the more technological advances like you know, baking powder, baking chocolate, roller mills for flour, all of that stuff it seems to widen the gap more, and I don't know if you feel that way. Um,
1: what I think widens the gap is the social disparity of the South. Now, there are there is a middle class, and there is a wealthy elite, but most Southerners, black and white, were poor, or as we would say in my family, poor. They were poor. And the poor suffered from, not from lack of food so much as lack of variety in their foods. And one of the things that, that I've written about a lot and I've given a lot of thought to is the sharecropping, particularly among cotton farmers, where... Enslaved people did not own land in large proportions and in many parts of the South, um, even white people didn't have access to owning land to where buying land was just beyond their reach. And so, for example, in the part of Texas that I'm from, um, by about 1900, 25% of the people owned the land that 75% of the people worked on. So you were three times more likely to be a sharecropper or a tenant farmer than you were a landowner. So where that comes to bear is that if you're a sharecropper or a tenant farmer, you get paid once a year at harvest. So October is the only time you've got money in your pocket. If you want a can of baking powder, if you want coffee, if you want sugar, if you want anything that you can't grow yourself, you buy it at the store. And it goes on your tab. And the interest rate on that tab can be 25 or 30%. So by the time the harvest rolls around in October, all of a sudden your grocery bill is bigger than your harvest. You've worked all year as hard as you possibly know how to bring in a good cotton crop and you're in debt. And so people who don't have access to a lot of food live on cornmeal and fat pork and if they and i could say a lot more about pigs and generally sorghum syrup something like that. that's the ba- that's the basics meal molasses and meat it's called and so by the 1920s there's a niacin deficiency disease called pellagra that is an epidemic portion proportions in the south and nobody knows what causes it It took a lot of really smart scientists to figure out that it was nutritionally based and to start feeding people niacin Um, but the contrast between the people in richmond eating their four-layer lady baltimore cakes and the sharecroppers getting pellagra because they have access only to cornmeal that is stark, and it is a truism of Southern history that we over-romanticize at our
0: peril. So I want to start off, uh, or roll into, rather, the the seventh chapter, Jelly Roll. Um, this is kind of the earliest 20th century, and can you tell me a little bit about what was happening with baking in the South at this time?
1: couple of big things one is though even though the south remains overwhelmingly rural it is becoming more urban by the day and we see cities like dallas charlotte atlanta um birmingham <clears throat> all of those are starting to really really make an impact and transportation is improving dramatically the automobile makes transportation easier and with it the demand for good roads. So the South becomes ever more connected and we see electricity coming in, running water, um, natural gas pipelines, all of those sorts of infrastructure that make life just more integrated. Um, And so, the big thing that happens in terms of baking <laughs> with this urbanization is that large commercial bakeries start and they produce bread. And so we see now now we've got to bear in mind that, you know, baking loaf bread, as we've talked about, has never been a big thing in the South. But to the extent that people had loaf bread, they made it at home. and. From the 20th century forward till, maybe till the pandemic, I don't know, um, bread baking leaves the house and becomes ever more commercial. So for example, here in Fort Worth, one of the great examples, pardon me, one of the great examples is a woman named Ninny Baird. And Ninny Baird and her husband have a restaurant and he develops diabetes, which is incurable about this time, which is about 1908. And Nenny has been baking for the restaurant. And she and her small children, like, like under the age of 12, start baking and delivering bread around the neighborhood. And literally, this is the start of the Mrs. Baird's. Bread Empire, I tell people there really was a Mrs. Baird and she really did start baking at her house. You now she scaled up real quickly. She uh traded for she traded money and bread for commercial. Oven pretty quickly, and they left the retail and went into wholesale pretty quickly. But that's just an example. And you see a lot of arguments during this point of going store bought bread is better than what you can make at home. It's more consistent. You don't have to heat up the kitchen. You don't have to chop wood. You can just buy it. And at this point, with the progressive reforms, you also have the sanitation arguments. That bakeries are cleaner, that they are more sanitary than what you can make at home, and their supplies are more consistent. So what you and I probably think of as just the horror of, of soft, square, white bread was the thing a hundred years ago, a much much prized much valued and much desired so that is one of the big things that <clears throat> now <clears throat> i'm sorry in addition to everything else got a frog in my throat it's okay except d now people do continue to make quick breads at home biscuits by the dozen my father was the youngest of eight children And his mother made dozens of biscuits every morning of her life. And I wish I knew how she made them because that that particular formula is gone. And people tend to get very misty-eyed about their grandmother's biscuits. But um, so lots of biscuits, still lots of cornbread. Rolls, as you mentioned earlier, are still very popular. But loaf bread making, by and large leaves the house and i think we might even be able to speculate that more people ate loaf bread after they could buy it instead of making it because it's just so readily available and it's great because it's usually it's supposed to be fresh in the stores and they get fresh bread every day whereas if you're making it at home you get fresh bread maybe once a week twice a week if you're really lucky But um, So urbanization, transportation, industrialization, flour gets cheaper because of industrialization, sugar gets cheaper because of industrialization. All of those factors make baked goods more plentiful and I would say probably a lot more widespread.
0: Yeah, I know that um, white bread in particular had been... Kind of a status symbol up until this point absolutely does that change with the sort of widespread availability of white bread does it does something else kind of take its place or what what kind of happens with that
1: it's a really interesting question um white bread remains the status and they you know how mean kids can be to each other so um Taking your your sandwich to school on store bought bread became the status symbol for the mean kids instead of biscuit. And it, so, if you were taking biscuits, then you were down the ladder. Uh, that's a good question in terms of of the elites. And I really huh, that's kind of a stumper. I don't know. <laughs> I um, mean, I'm I know I think,
0: that. Sorry, go ahead.
1: <laughs> now, among the very. All right, so I have to back up and go back to the domestic worker piece. Um, <clears throat> the number of white households that had domestic workers peaked before World War I. And so even though they're they're still fairly widespread, anytime an African-American woman can get a job doing something besides working in another family's house, she's going to do that. So the number of domestic workers is declining, and typically when a housewife has a domestic worker, the one thing she wants done most of all is laundry, and the second thing after that is cleaning. So cooking comes in like a third, down at least a third of the way down the road. So more white women start doing their own cooking. The technology is easier, as I mentioned, with stoves instead of fireplaces and with gasoline-powered stoves or electric stoves or whatever. Um, But really elite families continue to have domestic workers doing it all. They might have a cook. They might have someone to clean. They might have a driver. They might have four or five people on staff for the really elites. And so for them, red bread making and sweet making did stay in the house because they had these skilled cooks who could do it exactly like the family wanted it. And so you're not going to buy from a baker what your cook knows already how to make perfectly.
0: Mm, so homemade is still kind of the, the status symbol, like the peak and then having enough money to buy bread. Right would be the sort of second tier down and so on
1: yes okay yes but but you know cornbread's still at the
0: bottom (laughs) (laughs) well another interesting thing um i believe
1: is in this chapter is this is when we start to see tortillas, is that correct? It's when tortillas perhaps enter the mainstream. And I have to go all, all Texas historian on you here because um, that's one of my teaching fields. But one of the my big goals for this book was to remind people that the Spanish been around much longer than the English, and that St. Augustine, not William, not Jamestown, is the oldest city in the United States. So Spanish have been around for a long, long time, and here in the Southwest for a long time. So tortillas have been a part of American culture for, since, of, of what we call American culture, as in the United States. Since the early sixteenth century, so like I'm one of the things I'm really proud of in the book is that I have uh, a drawing of the um, of the Spanish city of Los Sedais, which was in western Louisiana, from the 1770s, and it's very the the oven is very obvious. You can see it. So that's a long way of saying tortillas have been around a long time, but. For example, here in Texas, after the Texas Revolution, in 1836, the new Anglo arrivals really worked hard to subjugate the Tejano population. And they discriminated and made life very difficult. So if you went to San Antonio, let's say in 1850, um, there are still plenty of people eating tortillas, but they don't have any power anymore. They have lost their standing that they had before the Texas Revolution. So fast forward to the 19-teens, when the Mexican Revolution is occurring, the second Mexican Revolution, we might call it, a time of enormous um, political unrest in Mexico. And that's when you get large, large numbers of immigrants coming in, particularly to Texas, Uh, other places as well. And of course, there's always immigration from other parts of Latin America, but Mexicans in particular. So you have women opening tortillas in cities to provide tortillas to the people who either can't or don't want to make them at home. So, yes. That is, that is correct in the nineteen teens, is when Mexican food starts to enter certainly in Texas and other parts of the South too. Sorry, long answer. Oh, no, I, I love it. Um, I think that's a good
0: sort of segue. I don't know how much we've really chatted about this, but Southern baking, Southern cooking, but Southern baking also is just has so many influences mm-hmm. i mean you have like spanish english french you german know, german yes german i mean later down the road we'll see a lot more um vietnamese even uh-huh. Uh-huh. indian chinese i i wonder how much that contributes to i hate to say a definition of southern baking but is is that a part of it
1: It absolutely is a part of it. And it comes to that core question of who's a Southerner, which is debated endlessly and on end. And it's, it's, I I tend to be very inclusive in my definition. Somebody who lives in the South or somebody who says they're a Southerner or somebody who used to live in the South and then moved away. If you say you're a Southerner, you're a Southerner in my book. I'm not very picky about it but one of my favorite examples very favorite examples is that there is this creation which is often called a texas sheet cake and it's it probably came into being in the early 1960s possibly from a housewife an unnamed housewife in Amarillo Texas but it's it's made with cocoa and buttermilk and um, cinnamon usually, and then it's frosted while it's hot with cocoa and butter and pecans. And just, just an amazing cake and super simple, super portable, super everything. And there is an Ethiopian barbecue place between Dallas and Fort Worth called Smoke and Ash. And one, they make their Texas sheet cake with pecans spiced with Ethi- the Ethiopian spice called berberine. And it is like literally the best thing I have ever eaten because the Texas sheet cake is, is amazing enough. And then you get the heat and the spice from those nuts and it just transcends. And so that kind of fusion cooking... I think is to be lauded and absolutely completely enjoyed. I
0: mean, when you said Burberry, I I set up a little straighter. I got excited about it, so. Oh, it's amazing. (laughs) It's just amazing. I I mean, it's really just a continuation of of how things started though, just using what you know and then using what's available.
1: Yes, I doubt seriously that the cooks in Ethiopia Well, they might have known pecans, but I doubt it. Hmm. And I could go all I can't. I have two other riffs on pecans and pecan pie because I got pecan pie wrong in the book. And I've I've written a blog post on it, um, correcting myself. What what did you get wrong about pecan pie? It was not the invention of Cairo syrup. It probably came from Metairie, Louisiana. Interesting. On the turn of the century. Interesting. Yeah, and I was trying. Oh, I know how I, I figured it out. I was, I was reading cookbooks again, <laughs> and and came and I'd said that pecan pie came about in the thirties from the K. syrup people, and here's the recipe for pecan pie as we know it, from like nineteen twenty four, and I went, uh oh, we got a problem here. So I got busy and I and I doubled down, and the earliest reference I can find. Is to the making them out in in Metairie around nineteen hundred, and they're not made with Cairo. They're made with, um, I think, Louisiana cane syrup, but but the idea is exactly the same. Wow! So you might you might want to check that blog post. It's on the it's on the UNC Press um, website. Honestly, Louisiana cane syrup sounds better. (laughs) (laughs) It's. I haven't tried it, but it's I bet it's good. I, I love the K Row syrup version. I I you know. Well, I'm, yeah, it's, it's a classic. Time <laughs> high is not for everybody, but I like it. Once <laughs> once a year.
0: Um so one other thing I wanted to touch on during this time is the home demonstration agents. Yes. Can we talk a little bit about what their contribution was to baking or teaching people to bake? How long do you have? i mean personally all day but
1: (laughs) i almost did my dissertation on home demonstration and i may actually do my next book on it oh
0: that's if i it was a large chunk of my thesis so i'm very curious
1: okay where do you start with the home demonstration (laughs) they were so amazing because they were one very brave and two, very, very sure of themselves. <laughs> you know, they they were trained and they had their ideas of what was right and what was wrong. And they were very, very eager to spread the gospel of doing things right. And Lord knows in the rural South, there was plenty to be corrected. Um, anything that they could do to, to help make a woman's housekeeping lighter or easier was certainly welcome. Unfortunately, they tended to be able to reach the women who needed them the least. Um, kind of the low-hanging fruit, and I don't really say that as critical, but the, the poorest women didn't have a way to get to meetings. They didn't have, they didn't own their kitchens, so they couldn't make improvements. Which is not to say they didn't want to learn, but it was just very difficult. So a lot of the women that the home demonstration agents worked with were landowning farm wives. And these women, by and large, were hungry for all sorts of information, whether it was recipes, whether it was just getting together, whether it was how to make your homemade dress look like it was custom finished all sorts of things so what the home demonstration agents did it now what they did with the with the girls you know they started with the the youth and the canning clubs those tomato clubs and things like that that was absolutely essential and the canning that was critical because that extended the growing season or the effects of the growing season throughout the year In terms of baking, um, it would have been more for standards and standardization, how to do certain things more efficiently, um, perhaps how to make sure that your eggs are fresh, or better ways to keep your butter and your milk cool. So more in terms of ingredients and more in terms of standards. Now, there are a couple of other ways. Uh, As I said, women were hungry for contact. They were hungry to get together. And there are a number of um, cookbooks that have been digitized that are out there that were put together by home demonstration councils. And so, for example, um, in Fannin County, Texas, they have something like 12 or 15 home demonstration clubs in all these tiny communities that, that you and I have never heard of. But the women identify themselves as members of these particular home demonstration clubs, and they cook traditionally, but they also cook new things. They are eager for new ideas. They may be reading um, Well, clearly they are reading. They might be reading Progressive Farmer, which usually had recipes in it. They might even be subscribing to the Ladies' Home Journal. And so they're culling recipes from all these different sources. And because they can get to town and because they have cash, they can try these things. Like in the 1920s, dates were the big thing. And so you have date cakes and date loaves and date cookies and date this and date that. And these women try them out <clears throat> and presumably show them off to their home demonstration mates. Now, the other way that home demonstration is very, very influential is by trying to create avenues of cash for women. And cooking becomes a really strong part of that Um You see rural women baking everything from pound cakes to cherry turnovers and taking them to town and selling them in markets. And uh, North Carolina has a particularly strong tradition of this, oh, in Virginia. uh, A historian named Anne McCleary wrote a lot about the ones in Virginia and they were called curb markets. So this is a way for women A, they have to be able to afford the ingredients, B, they have to be able to get to town to sell them, three, they have to have the time to make the things and to get to town and to sell them. But for those women who had access to those, very powerful to be able to have their specialties, to be able to um, to make money through what they were, through their skills and, and their time. And apparently a number of them were very, very good at it. And, and let me just throw in here, um, the opening scene of William Faulkner's novel called As I Lay Dying has a, a rural woman who is who is tending to Addie Bundren as she's dying. And she's just fussing because a woman had contracted with her to make cakes and she made the cakes using her very best ingredients. And then the woman who had contracted to, to buy the cakes backed out. And so her loss of income from those cakes and the expenditure of the ingredients makes the death room of Addie Bundren even darker and gloomier. So even Faulkner was aware of this trip. Yeah, because losing those ingredients
0: was probably a huge blow Mm -hmm. yeah wow um yeah i could talk all day about this particular era but um you know we can we can go ahead and move on to to chiffon pie um okay which seems like it's sort of uh, several things happening obviously there's the the intersection of food and civil rights. And that's kind of one of the places that we get to keep seeing how food is used to, I guess, for lack of a better word, subjugate people. Uh Um, It seems like there's a little bit less baking going on at home. There's some popular things that are baked at this time. Tell me a little bit about what's going on with baking this time.
1: Now, among Southern historians, there's always this question, to what extent has the South become integrated into the United States? <laughs> and, and if so, when? And, and I think we could argue that it's this period that the South really sort of rejoins the United States. It fought against it for a very long time. And the food certainly shows that we have national trends we have television we have radio we have interstate highways we have huge airports all of those things bring the south into the mainstream of american culture and and the food is no exception to that Uh, southerners remain southern and the food remains southern because it's in the south but i get so amused for example um, these cookies called russian rocks And uh, the cookbook author says, no Southern Christmas basket is complete without them. Well, (laughs) they go back to the early 19th century, there's nothing Southern about them at all, except that they've been adopted by Southerners and she has declared them to be Southern. And we see this with recipes over and over again, like the red velvet cake started out in New York and a very enterprising Texas woman whose home whose family sold food coloring decided to add red food coloring to it and voila the red velvet cake it's a chocolate cake with two bottles of red food coloring in it um i think i think i'm a little off track what were you asking me again i just
0: uh, no you're not off track at all just um, what the landscape of baking kind of looks like
1: women still bake at home, but it's most, it's going to be more sweets. You know, the cakes, the chiffon pies, uh, refrigerators are, well, after World War II, there's a giant expansion in home appliances because there is demand and there is money to buy these appliances. And so this is when you get the Harvest Gold wall ovens, and they're just as prevalent in Jackson as they are in Detroit. You know, there's nothing Southern about them, and, and Southern people are beginning to get less poor, if you will. There's still plenty of poverty. I don't want to t- take away that, but but they're getting less poor, and so more of this sort of expansion. So, um so and mixes come into effect at this point. And and Betty Crocker and I could talk for a really long time about um, about the flower companies here trying to make themselves relevant against the onslaught of Pillsbury. Um and the national trends. Oh and yeah, and Martha White and um what's the other southern flower that people love so much? Um but um swan. Swansdown? No, Swansdown's a northern flower. Oh, okay. I'll come up with it in a minute. I'm on a five minute delay here. Um, so, where am I going with this? That there is a lot of homogenization going on. Now, with regard to the civil rights movement, it's kind of horrifying. In one way, of course, we have the wonderful story of people like Georgia Gilmore, who raised money with bake sales to fund the civil rights movement. A historian named Jill Cooley writes very compellingly and very horrifyingly of white supremacists literally trying to starve civil rights activists into submission, withholding their commodity distributions and punishing them for trying to gain the right to vote, for example. So very serious. And one of the things that that Jill talks about um, is you have people you now. Let me back up. A lot of African American Southerners moved to the north, partially during World War One and then again during World War II, just getting the heck out of Dodge, if you will going where they can vote, going where they have more access to the things that they deserve. And it's at this point that we start seeing a large Southern diaspora in places like Detroit and Milwaukee and New York, for that matter. Um, and they take their recipes with them. But with regard to the civil rights movement, we have African-Americans in Chicago shipping commodities down to Mississippi to make sure that that the people who the white supremacists are trying to starve do not actually starve wow yeah so
0: it's really this is I feel like where it gets murky about being southern right like
1: (laughs) (laughs) oh being southern has always been murky (laughs) It's not a, it's not a, it's not a clean story at all.
0: That's a perfect way of putting it.
1: Um, What uh, I will say in that is that um, no human story is clean. We all do, civilizations all do things that hurt other people, but with its history of enslavement, I think the South is particularly complicated.
0: um, So we were talking about, just how kind of complicated and messy Southern history is. Yes. Complicated
1: uh, and messy describes it pretty well. What describes it? Sorry. Complicated and messy.
0: Complicated and messy. Yeah. And I mean, you can see that in, in some of the food for sure. Um, can, I don't want to, um, I'm trying to think about a good way to say this. I don't want to segue over to something so much lighter, but I'm really curious about all of these cakes and things that I think are considered pretty Southern that are like Coca-Cola cake, Uh stuff like that. Like is what, what is that?
1: (laughs) What is Coca-Cola cake? Uh, Yeah. uh, Or what is the Southern part of it? I think a little bit of both because there's a lot I, of kind of I wacky. Yeah. Yeah. I don't know what is. Some of these cakes are distinctively Southern and some are not. Um, I I had a really fun time tracing back the origins of several cakes, like the German chocolate cake, for example. It's not germ. There's nothing about the country of Germany about it. It probably was invented by a woman in Texas in the 1950s probably but it's called german chocolate because it uses german's baking chocolate which was invented by a man named german in the 19th century so this whole time we may have been thinking the country it came germany from, yeah. That it came from Europe. No, it came from probably Dallas, Texas. We're not sure. Uh, German's chocolate has been around for a long time and it's from Pennsylvania, I think. I'd have to look back at that. But um the um just to run down quickly, the um the lady Baltimore cake, which we don't see much anymore, but 120 years ago was the thing. Um so a white cake with all kinds of stuff in, in the filling. And it got famous because Owen Wister talked about it in his novel. I think it was his novel, The Virginian. I'm not sure. One of his novels. And it probably was invented in Charleston. But the thing that's hilarious about it is that people always talk about it as being, you know, the, that they have the original recipe. People know they don't. Um, there's another one. Um, hang on, just a second. Let me look. Let me look something up. Um, ah, the Lane cake. Yeah, Lane cake is not something that I see around much anymore. But Harper Lee talked about it in *To Kill a Mockingbird*, and so it was still very much around in the 1950s. But again, it's one of those that um, was invented by a woman named Ethel Lane, in in Alabama, and again, a fairly plain cake with lots of great ingredients in the in the filling, and as Scout said, in um, to kill a mockingbird had enough whiskey in it to make a person woozy. <laughs> <laughs> um, so those are definitely Southern cakes. Others in the 20th century, maybe not so much. Uh, the German chocolate cake, the... Texas sheet cake, the red velvet cake, are all actually sort of Southern in their in their origins. Um, my very favorite, though, is um, the tunnel of fudge cake, which was invented by a woman in Houston for the Pillsbury Bake Off, and she only took second place, but It became Pillsbury's most requested recipe at that time. It was so popular that the Nordic ware company had to run double shifts to keep up with the demand for butt pans. (laughs) And so this this is a genuine Southern invention. And I I remember hearing about a tunnel of fudge cake. I haven't had one, but apparently it bakes up uh, with a soft gooey center a fudgy middle, if you will. And it was extremely popular. So um, I have looked and looked and looked. And if anybody can help, I would love to know. it. I have not found anything about the origins of the Italian cream cake. It is emphatically not Italian. Oh. And it may be Southern, but nobody really knows. And the other one that's interesting is the hummingbird cake, which became very, very popular through Southern living in the 1970s, and it seems to have originated with the Jamaican Tourism Board. <laughs> <laughs> so, um, they something called a Dr. Bird Cake there in, in Jamaica. So, some things are Southern, some things are not Southern, but... Again, it's sort of like those Russian rocks cookies. If Southerners bake it and Southerners like it and Southerners claim it, then we go for it. Yeah, I think that's
0: that's so wild about the Italian cream cake because, honestly, there were so many Italian immigrants in the South that you would think that would have been, there would be some
1: link there. <laughs> yeah, no, it's it's very much a thing of the 19, 1970s. And maybe I'll dig around and see what I can find a little bit more. But I'm looking up, I am looking at Dolly Parton cake mixes right now. What does it say? Dolly Parton. Sorry, it's taking me to the Walmart website. <laughs> That's usually how it goes. Yeah. Amazon's faster. Let's see. Sorry. Oh, you're fun. You would think it would take me to the Duncan Hines site. Dolly Parton's favorite Southern-style coconut mix set. <laughs> Dolly Parton's Southern-style cake bundle box includes coconut and banana cake and more kind of icing. So you can get this in a package from Amazon. Huh, Banana cake. Um, okay, a- for $34. Ninety cents. You get a uh, Dolly Parton Southern style cake bundle box. Includes coconut and banana cake mixes, regular and chocolate creamy buttercream frosting, plus a favorites cake baking tips card. <laughs> <laughs> I I think that's a
0: perfect example of just calling things southern. <laughs>
1: Yeah, I, well, you know, as I said yesterday, or as I said the last time we talked, I will never, never, never um, say anything negative about Bob Dolly Parton, but but this does kind of make me raise my eyebrows. <laughs> uh, yeah, I think
0: maybe it's the cake mixes, but it just seems like a lot of. <sighs> Bakers were trying to just do something different. Um, you know, it seems like I, I think there's one that I see a lot in community cookbooks. I'm probably going to get the name wrong, but it's like a Japanese fruit cake.
1: Oh, yes. No, yeah, that's exactly the right name. Is that right?
0: <laughs> and it just is. Yeah, I've, I've seen that. I've seen ones that are called like tobacco cake and they all just I, I think it's
1: just a name. I haven't seen a tobacco cake ever, but the Japanese fruit cake. and again, I haven't traced it back to see where it started, but um, so uh, there was a woman named Kate Brew Vaughan who worked for Procter & Gamble and she called her Japanese cake the Mikado and it had 27 ingredients. Oh
0: my goodness.
1: Everything from apricots, to kumquats and pistachio extract and most of them were um had one plain layer and one fancy layer that would have raisins and figs and stuff like that and and then you could fill it but yeah japanese fruit cakes that you know who knows why they got called japanese but you know the interesting thing is that the internet gets more powerful every day. And I can probably go back and do a newspaper search for Japanese fruitcake and get pretty close to the origin of it and in a way that maybe I didn't try to when I was writing that part of the book five or six years ago.
0: Well, I think that would take, if you went through every sort of specialized sounding cake, I, yeah. I can't imagine how, how long that would take. <laughs> yeah
1: um but the origin stories are fun and sometimes they just shrug their shoulders and go, i don't know Just yeah, weird like the, Italian <laughs> cream, like the Italian cream cake i mean who knows after we get off after we get off i'm going to go into newspapers.com and see the <laughs> earliest hit i can find for Italian cream cake because that's uh, how that's how i found the uh the texas sheath cake uh i mean i know it gnaws at you um
0: so now we're kind of coming to the end of the book the last chapter and I just find it so interesting that we're just kind of circling back to the beginning it seems like is that is that kind of what's going on with baking we're we're trying to like re-learn older techniques
1: there certainly has been a revival of interest in old techniques. And that's even, you know, I, I joke and say that I killed three three different batches of starter during during the pandemic. I never did, never did get my sourdough game going, but there are certainly people who do and certainly people who did. Um things go through cycles and people certainly did bake their way through the pandemic. Whether that will hold or not remains to be seen. The cooking the commercial cooking game in the South is very sophisticated. And with national packaging and services like Goldbelly, I can buy real, well, I call what I call real, I can buy Moravian spice cookies from Winston-Salem and have them at my house day after tomorrow. But by the same token, I can also get New York bagels at my house day after tomorrow, as long as I'm willing to pay for the shipping. Mm. So there is this um, widespread commercialization. There's also, there are a lot of people who've been to culinary school and have their specialties. I can buy macarons right here in Fort Worth, Texas, and they're good. They're very good. Um, So I I don't know that I have a really good answer for you. Um, Whether home baking will remain popular as we all leave our houses after the pandemic, I don't know. I do think that commercial baking will continue to mirror national trends. And to a large extent, those national trends embrace regionalism. They embrace um local they to the extent that they can i got really tickled a couple of years ago because as i may have mentioned this area of north texas where i am grew wheat for about 70 or 80 years before the machinery got too big and it all moved out to west texas which is flat like a tabletop um And one of my favorite restaurants is called Hannah's Off the Square. It's in Denton, where the University of North Texas is. And they have what they call 100-mile dinners, where everything is sourced within 100 miles. And they said, and it's gluten-free because... there's no wheat grown within a hundred miles of here. And of course they push my historians button and I say, but did you know that the USDA actually had a a variety of wheat called Denton wheat? And the hostess is looking at me like, you know, like I've just grown, ruined two, it. grown two heads or something. But, um, it's hard to there's some things that are really hard to source locally, I guess is my long point. But to the extent that they can be sourced locally, I see a lot of of cooks embracing that. And of course, there is no local sugar. I mean, there's just there's just not. There may be from bees and there might be from maple trees in another part of the world, but there's there's no there is no local sugar. So how much that trend can continue? I mean, it's all emphasis, right? I was there's only one commercial mill in Texas. There's um, there's the commercial mill, and then there's the artisan mill. The artisan mill is called Barton, Barton Springs. But um, so I've been doing my local best to try to use the the flour from this one Texas mill, and it turns out that they that their labor policies are horrible. So it's like I'm damned if I do and I'm damned if I don't. there's there's no way to handle this situation correctly. I want to buy locally, but I'm not going to support a company that treats its workers the way they do. yeah, it, yeah go right. ahead oh, okay. Well, I say that having you know very little knowledge of how Pillsbury treats its workers but. <laughs>
0: Well, I think, you know, this kind of mimics when we started getting roads and, and better transportation in the South, kind of getting the influence from the outside a little bit more. Now Mm
1: -hmm.
0: it's almost reversed where like we can, we can be hyper regional, but also Mm -hmm. completely connected. Like you said, get macarons in Texas.
1: (laughs) Yeah, and, and it's more developed in some areas than others. Um, I was in Chapel Hill for my book launch last year, and the food culture there is extremely highly developed. And you know, Marcy Ferris and her colleagues wrote that amazing book just called North Carolina Food. And um, so it's, it's more in some areas than in others. But... There's lots of good food to be had in the big cities of the South in particular and lots of good food to be had in, in places that you have to seek out as well. Mm-hmm. So I just want to
0: ask um, a couple more questions and then we can wrap up. Um, I guess the first question I have is, is there any story or sort of vignette or anything that you couldn't put in the book or didn't go in the book that really kind of captured you?
1: I think I managed to get in just about everything that I wanted to. Um, oh, that's a dream. <laughs> <laughs> well, within limits, of course, I, I, you know, I said, can I have more than 100,000 words? And Elaine Mazner said, no, no, you cannot have more than a 100,000 words. <laughs> oh, and I couldn't cut the footnotes. So, If I'd cut the footnotes, I would have had a lot more space. Um, Now, I think if there was, you know, if there was a take-home message from the book that I really, really wanted to make sure that people understood and and that I hope they got, it's that people use food to create their identities and their relationships with other people for good and for ill. And... That it has baking has been one very powerful way of using that to shape the southern identity and southern social relations over the centuries. Yeah, um, and I just realized
0: that my second question was really more of a comment. I just wanted to thank you for writing this book because, to my knowledge, there is not another book that does sort of a complete just focusing on baking a complete southern history and I think you've very clearly shown that there is just a depth of things that we can learn from looking at cake (laughs) (laughs) or as you say grain and fire I just I really appreciate you highlighting that and and opening that up for some discussion
1: well, and it may seem obvious to you and me, because it's the water we swim in, but not everybody realizes that food is a suitable subject for study. I mean, it's so much a part of us, and it's so much a part of women's work, but I was with, um, with friends and a friend of a friend a while back, and I was giving a paper. I was about to give a paper at a conference. On these, um, on those cakes that I talked about, those Texas origin cakes. And I said, I said something about a conference, and this fellow said, What's your paper on? And I said, Cake. He said, Cake. And, and my my friend and colleague, Greg, stepped in and said, She teaches food history and, and writes books on it. And And this guy's like, Okay. So, <laughs> It's not always obvious to everybody when they say what do you what do you study, and I say cake. <laughs> as <laughs> it, as it, we it know, opens, it opens their eyes. As we know, there's so
0: much more to it than frosting. <laughs>
1: <laughs> well put. Well put. <sighs> now there's there's a lot of grain and a lot of fire under that frosting. That's right. Yes. All right. Well, thank you
0: so much, Rebecca, for your time today.
1: Way to wrap it up. That was great.